Actually, okay. I've never been to the Empire Theatre, so I don't know if that's true of the Empire Theatre, but it is of most theatres. They're really tight seating where you can't really get past people. Yeah. Even though we've had a reading from Romans 3, oh, it's, this isn't a sermon specifically just on Romans chapter 3. If you're visiting, our normal habit is to work our way through books of the Bible and whatever Bible passages read, that is the central focus of what we work our way through. But last week and this week, after we finished our series in the book of Acts, and we're soon next week to start a series over 13 weeks in the book of Revelation, we're doing a two-part series on assurance of salvation. Uh, Last week we had a look at uh, the fact the Bible says a lot about the topic, And today we're going to look at why might some people think that they are right with God but trusting in things that actually don't make them right with God. So that's partly why I chose that particular reading is that when you're doing a topical sermon it can be a bit difficult to choose what reading, what part of the Bible sort of encompasses the main thrust of what I'm trying to get across. And I think in Romans 3 you see both the idea of that there is a universal need for salvation but there's also the warnings about trusting or relying on things that aren't going to save you, but also the certainty of trusting in Christ who is, can more than abundantly save us. So as we look at this topic this morning, we're going to come before God in prayer and ask that he would be pleased uh, to work through his word uh, to minister to us. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that we come before the almighty God who everything that you declare is true and can be depended upon. Lord, we live in a world where there are so many big promises that often people just are unable to deliver on. But Lord, you never say something that you are not able to do. We don't need to ever question whether or not you will do the things you say. We never need to question your character and your motive because you are perfect and holy and all of your ways are good. Lord, this morning as we look at this topic, again on, on assurance of salvation, we pray that you might comfort those who already are a child of God in the precious promises that you have given us, but Lord, that you might challenge those who may either be trusting in something that doesn't bring us into a right relationship with you, or who have never come to trust you, though you would open their eyes and hearts to see the beauty of what you have done in Jesus Christ to deal with the problem of our sin, to reconcile us to God. So speak through your word this morning we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It's too good to be true. It's such a common expression, isn't it? It's just too good to be true. Usually we use that expression when something promises many good things but it just seems like it's that little bit too easy, a little bit too simple. Whether it's the email from your apparent Nigerian prince, long-distant relative who's apparently passed away, all you need to do is send a little bit of money in your bank account details and then all the riches in the world that belong to your long-lost cousin will be yours. Whether it be a phone call, offering something, a solar package or something that just seems so wonderfully cheap, how could this be ever true? Sadly, the world is filled with far too many stories of people who had pinned their hopes 
on something really grand, only to be disappointed that the things that they had pinned their hopes upon weren't actually able to achieve that thing. When it comes to eternal salvation, I can think of no greater setting in which that would be a tragedy. For somebody to pin their hopes of something, thinking that's going to lead them to a relationship with God and an eternity with him and all of his blessings, for them to pin their hopes on something that actually doesn't bring them into relationship with God. It's a sad reality that some people may think that they're saved or think that they're going to be with God, but they're trusting in something that's not going to take them there. Last week we saw how the Bible speaks very clearly and regularly on the topic of assurance of salvation. If you are in Christ, you can be certain you are his child for all eternity, kept in heaven, the promises, inheritance for you. We saw Jesus speaks in this way, so does every single New Testament author. Our main passage that we looked at was the parable of the sower or the parable of the soils. But we see how it represented the word of God going out in four different responses. And of those four different responses, it was interesting to see three out of those four in the early stages had all the exact same signs. The appearance of life. But it was a seed that was designed to produce fruit. And only one of those four, the good soil, did. The biblical picture of a genuine saved Christian is one who produces fruit and continues to produce fruit. If you were away last week, just give me a little bit of a taste. We had a look at John's Gospel and just some of the things that that Jesus says are true of those whom God has called to Jesus Christ and who have come to Jesus Christ, says they will never be judged, will never perish, they will be saved, they have already passed from death to life, they have already eternal life, they will be raised on the last day, they will never be cast out, and no one will or can snatch them away. But when we spoke strongly about the importance and what the Bible says about assurance, we also looked at what the Bible says very seriously alongside that is that we need to examine that we actually are in the faith. The wonderful blessings and promise of assurance are only precious and beneficial if you actually are in Christ. Now, I don't believe the Bible wastes words in any sense whatsoever. So for the Bible to say, examine to see if you are in the faith, can only be because God knows there will be some people who think that they're in the faith who actually are not. We spoke about how there's, with regards to salvation, there's four different types of people. Those who are saved and they know that they're saved. Those who are saved but aren't confident that they are. Those who are not saved and know it. And those who are not saved but think that they are because they're trusting in something that is not going to lead them to Christ. And so my prayer as we look at this passage and these these verses is that it would be an encouraging reminder to those who are in Christ of the firm grip that he has upon us that we cannot be taken away 
But if we are trusting in something that does not lead us to Christ, that God would open our eyes, that we would turn to the things that lead us to Christ. Today we're looking at what is biblical salvation. We're going to look at six particular reasons or things that people may place their trust in that do not lead you to Jesus. And then lastly, how can I be sure that this assurance that we're speaking about is something that I have? So what's biblical salvation? Now, if it can be said that there are some people who think that they're right with God who are misled, why, why would that be? Why would someone think that they are saved if they're not? Often when you hear people talking about evangelism and some of the questions you might ask in dialoguing with someone to get an idea of where they're at, sometimes people might say to a person, if you were to die right now, would you go to be with Jesus? And they may follow that up with another question of, why do you think he would let you in? And those two questions reveal some important information about somebody. The first question is, of do you think you'll go to be with Jesus, tells you whether or not that person thinks that that's where they're going to go. But that second question of why says, what is it that you are pinning your hopes upon as the reason why you will go to be with Jesus? It'll either reveal that they are trusting in the things that God has provided for salvation, or maybe that they are trusting in something that doesn't lead to salvation. So what is biblical salvation? The Bible talks about being made new, being born again. Because as we saw in our opening reading, nobody is born into this world naturally good enough for God. What we read in Romans chapter 3, it says that no one is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside Together they've become worthless, not of no value, but they are not carrying out the thing which they are created for, to be in relationship with God. No one does good, not even one. That's a a pretty scathing sort of view of humanity, isn't it? That all, without exception, no one is righteous, no one does good, no one seeks after God, The only thing that everybody does, this verse says, we all turn away. Rather than wanting to serve and honour God, we all say, I just want to do it my own way. I want to leave him out of it. And just five verses later, I mean five chapters later, it says the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Not just, not really interested, is actively hostile to God does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So if no one is good, righteous, seeking after God, cannot become right in his sight by doing any particular good acts, and if by nature we're hostile, how on earth does anyone get saved? When Jesus is talking to a religious leader named Nicodemus, He says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He says, you've got to be born again. He's saying the way that you were born at first is never going to lead you to God. We don't do good, we're not righteous. We need to be made new. 
This born again, Jesus says pretty much the same sentence, two verses later, verse 5, where instead of saying born again, he says born of the Spirit. He says, you need God himself to make you new. If we're naturally not good, righteous, we're hostile, the message of what God has done in Christ for us is foolishness, then God needs to make us new. He needs to change something about us. And that's an important thing for us to remember too when we're talking to other people about Jesus. Yes, it's helpful to think about how you communicate the gospel clearly, but unless God makes that person new, that they might actually see their sin, see the goodness of what God has done in Jesus for us, it'll just sound like foolishness. So pray that God would make that person new. So firstly, God needs to make a person new to understand that we are a sinner, to understand the gospel. And once we are made new and we can see our sin, then we come from a stage where we, where we thought we're okay living for ourselves, where we actually grieve that the God who created us, who gives us all good blessings, everything that we have, that we've rebelled against. We've dishonoured him. We've turned our back on him. We understand that we deserve judgment and punishment for that. Remember back when we were going through Acts in Acts chapter 2? They heard Peter talk about what God had done in Christ to do with the problem of our sin. A number of the crowd that there would have been part of the group who were, crowd, who were announcing crucify him of Jesus not long earlier. But now that they've heard this, they were cut to the heart Something has changed within them. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? They've heard the message. God has changed something about them. They say, We need to do something about this. And Peter's response is, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. These people probably would have been once really angry if someone told them they were a sinner. But God had changed something in their heart. And they're like, yeah, we have. We've, we've dishonoured our God. We need to do something about this. And the natural response was to repent, to turn around, to change your mind, to turn from serving yourself and dishonouring God, to turn to God, his provision of salvation, to serve him that he is your rightful king. And Peter says, you will receive forgiveness of sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit. That's what repentance is. You go from being grieved that you've dishonoured God to desiring to want to live for him. So we need to be made new to see our sin. We need to repent to turn and change our mind. And one of the outward expressions of that is that we believe or we, we trust Jesus. We trust in what Jesus says about us, our need for our salvation. We trust what God has done in Jesus, that death that we all deserve to die, that Jesus came into the world, he took that upon himself, and we trust him, that his death was satisfactory, was our death, and we trust him daily living for him. When Paul speaks about grace and faith in Ephesians, he says, it is by grace you've been saved through faith. 
This is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no man may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. So he said we're saved by grace, that is to receive something we don't deserve. Christ has come, he's died in our place even though we were hostile towards God. So the means by which we're saved is what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. But the way that we receive and take hold of the the benefits of that is through faith, through trusting him. One of the results of our faith in Christ, it says we are justified. That's just a legal term, meaning that we are declared right in God's sight. If our problem was our sin and our rejection of our king, the one who created us, that we were once hostile towards and dishonoured, when we come to faith, we who were once hostile enemies are declared right in God's sight and it completely changes our status. Paul says to the church in Rome, therefore since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And only eight verses later, it goes on to expand on those precious promises, saying, Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, how much more will we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more, now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? I like that. The reminder, while we were enemies, God didn't wait till we got good enough. While we were enemies... When we came to him, repentance and faith, we were declared right in his sight. Not only are we declared right in his sight and given the righteousness of Christ, he places his Holy Spirit within us. As Paul writes to the Ephesians, he says that when we believed in him, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of the inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The moment you believe, the fullness of God's Holy Spirit enters into you, who is the seal, like a kingly seal, where you're marked, you belong to God, you are his child, as a guarantee that all of that inheritance one day will be yours. In Romans chapter 8, Paul speaks about those who have the Spirit That's those who belong to God. He says, if you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to God. The same Holy Spirit that first made you new to see your sin, to see the goodness of the gospel, to respond to it, is the same Holy Spirit which dwells within you, works within you to transform you, to produce the fruit that God desires in your life. And as we look at that as a basic overview of how salvation actually happens, It's sad to think that there are so many who think that, yeah, when I die, I'm going to go be with Jesus. But those things that we've spoken about are not things that they've experienced at all. The scariest verses in the Bible, which we've referred to last week as well, is in Matthew 7, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will come to me saying, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? 
And then I will declare to them, this is Jesus speaking, I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. He doesn't just say that there'll be a couple who say, no, I did all these things in your name. He says, there'll be many who say, I did all these religious things, I did them for you. And they're so confident they have a relationship with Jesus. And Jesus in response says, depart, I never knew you. He says, I, there never was a relationship. Now, all of the things that they spoke about, casting out demons, prophecy and doing mighty works in his name, they're good things, they're God-given things. But none of those things are things that bring you into right relationship with God of their own. They were trusting in things that do not save So what are some of the common ways, things that people place their trust in to think that they're going to be right with God that actually don't match up with what God says is how you become right with God? We're going to look at six reasons why people falsely think that they're saved. The first one is the presumption if Jesus died for sinners once and for all, then that means universally every single human is forgiven, everyone's going to go to be with him. They might look at a verse like in 1 John chapter 2. He is the propitiation of our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. But then it goes on to say, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth's not in him. So straight after it says the whole world, it says, well, this is who actually does belong to Jesus. The previous chapter tells us to confess our sins, makes it very clear that we're not all right with God. Jesus tells the the disciples after he's risen from the dead to go make disciples, to proclaim the gospel, to call people to repent of their sin. So clearly by Jesus' death and resurrection doesn't make the whole world universally right in his sight. The New Testament is full of people calling people to return to Jesus speaking of the judgment which is to come. So if you're in the position where you're trusting that just because Jesus died on a cross that automatically everyone is saved, then God says, that's not right. Secondly, the idea that all paths would lead to God. Now you hear that expression particularly a lot today when everyone's kind of like, everyone's opinion's valid. No, all religions are the same. They They call him different things, but they're all going in the same direction. The only problem is, pretty much every religion speaks about being the exclusive way to know God. Which means that you've only got two options. Either they're all wrong, or one of them's right. They can't all be right if they're all making competing claims. People say, oh, it's the same God. Some people call him this, some people call him that. But Jesus spoke about himself as being an exclusive path to God. He says, I am the door. He doesn't say, I'm one of many doors. Give me a crack if you don't like the other ones. When Peter was speaking to some religious people, he says, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So Peter's very clearly rebuted that claim when people say that, oh yeah, just saying gods, we're just giving them different names. Peter says there's no other name. 
given under heaven by which we must be saved. That's not just Peter's claim. Jesus speaks the same sort of exclusivity. He says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one without exception comes to the Father except through me. Jesus wasn't backwards. There is no other way to God the Father than through Jesus Christ. Now, some might think, well, that's a little bit arrogant. Here's Jesus saying, I'm the only one. Well, it would be arrogant if all of the other ways were valid paths that lead you to God. But if it's true, that's not arrogant, is it? If it's true, it would be so unloving to let people think, no, you can go whichever way you like. Sure, that way's not going to get there, but I'll let you think that way. Thirdly, false thing that people might pin their hopes on, that all good people just naturally go to heaven by living a pretty good life. Now we do all sorts of exams throughout life and often the standard is if you get 50% it's a pass. So maybe if I do more good stuff than I do bad stuff, then surely I'm going to be sweet with God, aren't I? But when we talk about a good person, we're usually comparing ourselves to other people. So at least I'm better than that person. But we're talking about how do we get to be in the presence of a perfect and holy God? Kind of raises the bar of what do we mean by good a lot higher. And not only does that raise the bar of what it means to be good, usually the whole idea of how someone has treated and responded to the perfect God who has given them all good things, life and breath and everything, as though it doesn't matter that, oh yeah, sure, I've been an enemy, I've been hostile towards him, but I've done some pretty good things. Remember what our reading said about its assessment of mankind? None of us righteous. No, not one. None understand, no seek for God. All have turned aside, together become worthless. No one does good, not even one. I can assure you that before I trusted in Christ, I was not good enough to enter into his presence. And I can tell you something else. Right now, my life is not good enough to enter into his presence. I don't stand before God in confidence because I've lived a good life or because I'm a pastor of a church. I can stand in God with confidence because when I've come to him, I've turned from my sin to him in faith. I've received his promised Holy Spirit. I've received the righteousness of Christ and it's his righteousness that makes me acceptable in his sight. The fourth foul things people might pin their hopes upon is, well, I go to a church. All my life we've gone to church, whether it's just Christmas and Easter or even every single week. Maybe I've gone to church every week, morning and an evening service. But being part of a church doesn't automatically mean that you are a child of God. Sure, as Christians, we should gather together. We're told not to forsake gathering together. But being in a church doesn't make you automatically a child of God. Having mum and dad who are Christian doesn't automatically make you a child of God. Being a member of a church doesn't make you a child of God. Being in a role in ministry in a church doesn't make you a child of God. All of those things are good things, but if that is what you are depending upon, I'm going to get into heaven, I'm going to go to be with Jesus because I've attended church or because I've done this role in ministry, that will not be enough. I was in a meeting during this week 
where someone was talking about a Christian leader who was in Toowoomba some time ago who was really unwell and he was asked, are you looking forward to going to be with Jesus? And the person was shocked at the answer. He said, I hope I've done enough good things to get in there. That someone who was a leader of a church was depending on hoping he'd stockpiled enough good works to get to see him. The fifth false thing that people might pin their hopes upon is religious practices they've been involved in. Depending on your church background, you might call them ordinances or sacraments, speaking of communion or baptism. Both of those things are a visible sign of what Christ has done on the cross to deal with the problem of our sin. And they are important reminders for those for whom those things are a reality for. But nowhere does the Bible speak of those things saving a single person. Now I know in a Roman Catholic setting it may often be taught that by being baptised, original sins removed from you. But the Bible doesn't say that. I have family members who as children have been baptised and have taken their first communion who have no interest in God whatsoever but presume because of those things that they're somehow going to be right with God. If we remember back to Matthew chapter 7, there was someone who says, look, we did prophecy, we cast out demons, we did great things in your name. We did religious things. And Jesus says, I never knew you. He's going to say the same thing if you say, I, I'm going to come to be with you because I took communion or I got baptised. If that's the only thing you're pinning your hopes upon, other than the shed blood of Christ, you'll say, I never knew you. And the last of the six we're going to look at, maybe you're at a, an evangelistic event. And they said, if you want to respond to this, raise a hand. Come out the front. Pray this particular prayer. All of those things may indeed be good, but ministry effectiveness isn't measured by how many decisions you might get at a particular event. If you cast your mind back to the previous week as we looked at the parable of the sower or the parable of the soils, there were three out of the four that initially had all the good signs. Remember the one amongst the rocky, rocky ground that sprang up immediately with great joy? But it had no root. It had no connection to the source of life and it withered away. John writes in his second letter, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Often the only way we differentiate between those different responses in the soils is standing the test of time. So we've spoken about assurance as possible. We've spoken about some things which people might falsely place their hopes upon. But how do we know that these promises of assurance actually apply to me? We see that both Jesus and the New Testament authors speak about it a lot. We looked at the great verse of Romans chapter 8, verse 30, where it says, Those whom he predestined, that's chose, he also called, and those whom he called he justified, and those whom he justified he also glorified. Sometimes people refer to this as the golden chain. He says, everyone he calls, everyone he, he chooses, he calls, justifies, and glorifies. Everything from call to going to be with him not a loss of one. No dropout, zero exceptions, 
So how and what are some indications that I'm somewhere in that pathway? Well, we said at the beginning, we're born hostile. We don't want God to be our king. We don't want to live for someone else. So I think if you've gone from a position where you get angry at the idea that God would say that you are a sinner, worthy of judgment, to hearing that same message, to actually thinking, you know, rather than me being angry, I agree. I grieve over my sin. There's sorrow. I want to honour him. When the Bible speaks about this new birth as being born again, new creation, it speaks about something coming into existence which didn't exist before. A genuine Christian has a changed life. Paul regularly in his letters talks about putting off the old self, putting on the new, because you are a new creation. To the Galatians, he said, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So if someone is a new creation, we will see change. But sometimes we're not the best person at seeing what God has done in our life. We need to encourage one another when we see God at work in the lives of others to encourage it because we may not see it ourselves. One of the things that I love is to be in an environment that I haven't been in for a really long time and it might have been something that I used to love doing. But to be in that environment and all of a sudden think, I just don't feel comfortable being here. In fact, I actually don't like these things which I once loved because Christ has formed in me and changed me to be more like him. It's a good sign that God has done that changing work when you actually desire to obey God. When you're actually grieved and disappointed when you don't. When God chose us, he had a purpose for doing so. In Acts 8.29, directly for the verse 30, that golden chain that we looked at, he says, He also predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son. He chose us with a purpose to change us, to mould us, to make us more like Jesus. So if there's evidence in your life that you are being changed more and more to be like Jesus, then you can see, this Romans 8.30, I'm part of, I'm somewhere in that. But if you look at your life and think, I haven't changed at all, and I've got no desire to be changing at all, then I seriously challenge you, are you in the faith? But if God is changing you, and you love calling upon him as your Lord and your King, that you actually take pride in being a servant of Christ, that is a very good sign that what God has done in your life. And the second, that we're not going to do with everything because it's already going to be a long enough sermon as it is, is the guarantee and seal of the Holy Spirit. We saw in Ephesians 1 that when we believe God's Spirit is placed within us, that marks us as his own child and is the guarantee of the inheritance to come. But what that does is it creates in us a yearning for more of God. As Paul writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians, he says, For while we're in this tent, as in our body, not camping trip, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. 
He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. The Bible actually speaks of the Spirit as a guarantee on three occasions, in case you need some reminders of that. It says, if you've got the Spirit, you will not only love what you've got, but you will long for more and more of it. Some other signs that the Holy Spirit has come into your life. John 16, Jesus says, He will bring you conviction of sin, of righteousness and judgment. You will see your need for a saviour. You'll see yourself as a sinner who needed a saviour. You will desire what the gospel holds out to you. You'll see it as useful and good and you will trust in it. You'll want to seek out God in his word. According to Romans 8, by the Holy Spirit, he will help you to put to death the old nature. The Holy Spirit will affirm to you that you are indeed his child. In Galatians 5 says, the Holy Spirit will work in you and produce a fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. And that's just a small portion of what the Bible says about how you can see whether the Holy Spirit is within someone. Because Romans 8, he who has the Spirit belongs to God, he who does not have the Spirit does not belong to Christ. That's why I'm labouring the point of how do we know we have the Holy Spirit? Because if we have the Holy Spirit, we are marked as God's child, guaranteed and sealed. So what? Well, it's an important topic on many reasons, but mainly because this is dealing with the most important thing in our life. Am I a child of God? The God who created us to be in relationship with him Am I in right relationship with him? Because one day he says he's coming back again and the entire world will be judged. Now we judge upon not those list of six things that we looked at, but have we trusted in God's provided saviour, Jesus Christ, his death on behalf of our sin and resurrection? But there are also two implications I want to draw out. The first is that when we are assured, we are more effective in service. When they built the the Golden Gate Bridge, in the very first phase of it, 23 people fell to their death. There was no safety mechanisms whatsoever. OH&S was all over that one. Then they put in a $100,000 safety net, probably a fair expense at that point in time. Ten people fell, so it's a reduced number, and they were all safe. But alongside that, they were 25% more productive in their work. There is something about being assured of something that you don't need to worry about, that you can focus on the things that actually matter. Like if we actually focus on, yeah, I know I am a child of God, rather than spending all our time wondering, oh, what if he gives up? No, I've just done this. What if I'm out of the, out of the club? If you have that assurance, you can just get on with with following after Christ in obedience. Satan can't take you from God, but gee, he'd love to get you distracted, taking your eyes off, thinking, maybe I'm not. And secondly, life's just uncertain. None of us knows how long we're going to live. None of us knows whether we're going to be around here tomorrow. And if you've got no assurance of where you stand with God, you'll probably be scared about death. 
you probably do everything you can within your power to avoid it. But if you are in Christ and you hear his promises of assurance, you will be confident in that day. I remember chatting to one of my friends. His dad had cancer. He's the family over in America. I remember talking to him in some of his final months and I said to him, Bruce, how can I pray for you? Bruce's response was this. He knew he was going to die very soon. He says, I know where I'm going. Pray for my family. That's the sort of assurance that that man had. He knew he was dying. And when I said, how can I pray for you? He didn't say, oh, give me, just, just hold off this death thing or, or make it more comfortable. He says, I know where I'm going. That's the important thing. But I've got family members who don't know where they're going. He says, pray for my family. It's a sad thing when people live in this world and they're not too sure. If you grew up in a Roman Catholic background, not only have you got that idea that thinking that your sin was removed at baptism, which it wasn't, but then they teach this idea that there's certain things that can sort of take you out of favour with God and then you need to work your way back in. What the Bible says is Christ died for sins once for all. If you have come to him in faith, you are and do not come into judgment. You have passed from death to life. Our daily lives are inconsistent. Some days are better than others. If I had to stand before God based on even my best day, I would utterly panic. If thinking my best day, the way I live, that that would be good enough, I would be trembling in fear. But if I'm in Christ, then Jesus says, I've passed from death to life. He says, I will not come into judgment. He says, I have eternal life now. He says, I have guaranteed and sealed and marked as his. As a Christian, I can't think of a more comforting thing for us to hear. We live in a world that is corrupted by sin in so many different ways. We see our own failures to, to struggle with our own passions and sins. So the greatest thing we could ever hear that God hasn't given up on me because of what I did today or yesterday. But it's also the greatest hope that any person could hear. Now if in hearing what we've been speaking about this morning that you feel that, yeah, this God deserves an honour and I haven't, I've, I've just completely ignored him. I've just gone my own way, treating him as though, thanks for all your stuff, but I've just ignored you. Maybe God has done some of that, making you. Because that's what he does when he makes you new. You see yourself as a sinner. You see yourself in need of his grace and his salvation. I remember when I was in that position, when I came to believe that these things were true, that was such an inner struggle. I grew up in a Christian family. I was quite outspoken that I thought Christianity was stupid. Yet here I was believing it was true. I was like, I believe it, but committing to it, that's a big thing. And I was like, what do I do with this? You do exactly what Peter says to those at Pentecost when they were stressing, what do I do? You say sorry, you say thanks, and you trust. Then you repent, you turn from your disobedience, your dishonouring of God, you turn to Christ, you thank Christ for what he's done on the cross on your behalf, 
and you trust and live for Christ. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know we've spent a bit longer this morning than we normally do at this time. But Lord, there is nothing more important than to know where we stand with relationship with you. Lord, if there are discussions that needed to be had, Lord, I pray that those who are either uncertain or who want to know more about you, uh, that they would come speak to myself or someone else that they know who does know you. Lord, we thank you that in this world where we have good days, bad days, days when we just can't believe the things that we've fallen into, we thank you that your grace is sufficient. When we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We thank you that you have promised that all that those you chose, you will call and you will follow it all the way through to declaring us right, to raising us up to be with you on that last day. But as we are thankful for what you have done for us, help us to, to live in humble obedience and to proclaim your goodness to others around us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.